You're listening to the Girls on the Grid podcast with Tanaya and Priya. Welcome back to the Girls on the Grid podcast. This is episode 35 and it's the second part of our Coral Taylor interview. So without any further ado, no rambling at the top of this one, we're going to jump straight in because I know that you're all so excited to pick up on the awesome episode from last week. So part two, Coral Taylor, the Girls on the Grid podcast. Enjoy. Being in such a big rally family with your husband racing, the kids racing, yourself racing. Back in the day when you were all kind of in the same spot, what did what did a normal week look like for your family? Well, it's um, there. There's been quite a bit of time where Molly and I have both been competing. My husband um, competed, you know, as a privateer driver, just for because his pure enjoyment and love of rallying. But once my career sort of became a full-time career with the rallying. Mark worked from home and didn't do very much at all with motorsport because he was very busy looking after two girls while I was um, away rallying. So he kind of, you know, we used to call him Mr Mum and the big joke in our family in those days was that when I came home, the school lunches weren't as good because Dad made better ones. Um, <laughs> so there wasn't often where the three of us were competing but when Molly started competing it, it was and it was more when she came back to Australia you know all that hard work had led the culmination of that was getting the opportunity to drive for Subaru in Australia as a professional driver and so suddenly we were doing the same events and and that was really stressful because you know I would be in the middle of a stage calling notes and there would be a dangerous corner somewhere. And, and I'd find myself thinking, oh, I hope Molly's got that one. Or, you know, in the early events, she would be behind us on the road. No, sorry, yeah, behind us on the road when we were running the classic car. So you'd get to the end of the stage and then you would be quite nervous for quite a while, waiting, you know, clicking refresh on a set of results 20,000 times to make sure that she'd come through. Um, there were then events where she was running in front of us on the road. So that was great because if you got to the end of the stage and you hadn't seen her, then obviously you knew that she was through and, and things were great. So how was life for us then? It was that that was on the event. But one story I will tell you, which I think is really funny. When Mark was running his rally school, he had a like a truck transporter, that, like a car carrier that you'd see outside a car dealership that would carry six cars. So on a Friday afternoon, he'd be loading the rally cars onto that truck to take to the rally school the following morning. So one Friday, he was loading those. So if you've got cars, you know, rally cars rumbling away quite loud, going up metal ramps into a truck and everything's clanging and banging and it's really noisy. And on that day, Molly was working on her rally car and she'd actually moved it around to our front door under a sort of a portico cover because I think she had something else in the garage, I can't remember. So Molly was working right at the front door on a rally car and at that point she was laying under the car taking the sump guard off. So there were rattle guns, you know, zoop, 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 and then clang bang as this sump guard came down under the car. So Mike's loading the truck, Molly's pulling a some guy off the rally car and my other daughter, Jane, arrived home for the weekend. 
And so she walked up carrying two bags and she got to the front door and she dropped her bags and she just looked around. You know, that was in the full force of a rattle gun right near her ear and the truck and everything. And she turned around and she looked at me and she said, uh, so am I adopted? That was kind of sort of one of those crazy family moments. And my Jane, you know, my Jane then married this gorgeous, gorgeous guy who came to our house, you know, in those early days when they were first going out and knew nothing about motorsport. And it kind of highlighted to me that I realised we were this crazy family, but we didn't think it was crazy. We just thought everything that was going on was quite normal. So bring an exterior person into this family. And I think about him now, you know, a few years down the track, the poor guy must have been so intimidated and wondering what on earth was going on. Someone who Very overwhelming. No, no um, exposure to motorsport whatsoever. And suddenly, poor old Baino, he ended up in our family. That's why Priya's single, because she's too scared to bring someone into her motor racing oh family. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, it is. Yeah. But, you know, the thing is, my daughter's husband has been watching, um, what's that F1 show? Um, Drive, to Drive to Survive. Drive to Survive. That's it. And he is so into it. And now he can sit at dinner and he knows, oh, a thousand times more than I do about F1. He can talk, tell you about teams and team owners and what this person is doing and that person is doing. And interestingly, he has female friends from work that also watch that show. Again, nothing connected to motorsport. So after an episode, they're texting each other with you know things that happened in the previous episode. So I find that really intriguing that we have grown a motorsport audience through that show by huge crazy. numbers of people who've never never had any involvement nor interest. It's turned the, it's yeah it's turned our world into a bit of like I actually I've said this on the pod before but I had someone tell me that they were excited to watch their favorite actors on Drive to Survive. Actors. I'm like, I'm like you realize that this these is are real, real life. <laughs> you realize yeah. that this is a documentary and they don't even know that like you know, even a guy that we work with, Jared, he he's a videographer on our team. And he prior to Drive to Survive, he had no interest in motorsport. And now he could tell you like the guy's knowledge of F1 and how much he loves it. Seriously, he is he knows all the way back to the history. Like he's watched old races. He knows all these people. He, he could tell you, you know, how many millimeters this part is and what this this, you know, what this uh it blows my mind. And I'm like, how have I been a fan of motorsport for 15 years? And I don't know any of this, but you've watched four seasons of a TV show and just absolutely fallen in love with it. Like how good is it that that production has done that for motorsport, brought it into a general conversation? We're not so, you know, you're just motorsport people anymore. You know what else um, when I look at that? Because people are often saying to me, oh, you know, how do we get more females involved in the sport? You know, blah, blah, blah. Why don't we have as many females? And, you know, honestly, I totally believe it's purely exposure. You know, I was lucky mm-hmm. to be exposed to it and Molly was, so Molly didn't think anything was unusual that she had an interest in it. So Same with, same with me and same with Priya. We both just thought it was the mm-hmm. norm. 
Yeah. So for those families, you know, girls or boys that don't have any involvement, if they had some exposure to it, you know, and took an interest in it, that's what it's all about. It's it's exposing it to people at a young age so that they're aware of it. And if they have an interest in it, there's a path to follow. And Molly now is very heavily involved with the Girls on Track program, which is specifically aimed at doing that, exposing yeah. women to the opportunities and exposing young girls to the possibilities that motorsport holds. Yeah. And, you know, not just as drivers, in, in any form of the business of motorsport, you know, whether it's um, in team management, in business, in media. The amount of people that yeah. Priya and I have that reach out to ask who have either been through Girls on Track or just, you know, see us walking around with cameras and they're like, wow, I see a girl doing it. I can do it too. You know, yeah. like it's, it's, it's yeah. representation. One of my best stories about that is Molly, um, Molly had a little fan, this gorgeous little girl who turned up at a rally one day, but she was a huge Molly fan and came her mum brought her to the rally but she was once she got there she had a bit of stage fright and she was too nervous to actually talk to Molly and then they turned up at the next rally and the next rally and this is rallies all around Australia and this same mother and this little girl turned up and what we didn't know um, was that um, the story came out probably a year or more into seeing seeing this mum and daughter turn up Um, this child had autism and it took some time for them to work out you know she would she would say what what would you like they'd ask what she would like for Christmas she would tell them she'd like a Barbie doll but they could never understand it because she had a drawer full of dolls but she never played with them and it wasn't until her diagnosis and some work with whatever the health professional was that she was working with it came out that she actually had an interest in cars so they googled and they found a, a clip on Google, on YouTube of Molly. And that was how this little girl became obsessed with Molly. So she watched a woman in motorsport on YouTube and then started going to rallies. And, you know, if you met this little girl today, she's gone from this shy little girl to an absolute extrovert who's just full of life. But in that journey, she made a video one day, she had a little YouTube channel and she made a video about a rally she'd been to. And the, the point of this story and where I'm heading with it is that as the vision was showing a shot of Molly driving through a stage, Ella was trying to explain what rally was in her little video. And she said, and something along the lines of the difference between you know the rally driver and the circuit racer is in a rally with all the trees in the forest around. However, she described it, she said, she said the word she, she said for the rally driver, she might crash into a tree. And that, it was just that line, she might crash into a tree. And I went, wow, I've never heard, you know, generically in any description of motorsport, people would generally say he might do something. And you would think he as well. That's just automatically what your brain does. For this little girl, that concept wasn't there. She had been introduced through motorsport and seen a female driver. So to her, it was about a girl who might crash or do whatever. So, you know, as you were saying before, it's having those role models that people see once they, you know, 
if you see someone doing something, you know, you think, well, yeah, I could do that. It's, it's incredibly important. And I think Molly has been instrumental in um, being that role model for a lot of girls and a lot of very young girls. 100%. And I think back in episode two, Leanne Tander come on this podcast and she just left us with some beautiful line, which was to be it first, you must see it. To yeah. believe that it's possible that yeah. you can do it, you first must see someone doing it. Yeah. And that just sums up sometimes sums up this whole thing, especially, you know, even with drive to survive, like you see it, you know, you see it being a thing and you see it being represented with girls on track, you know, you see it actually happening and you introduce to these people like Molly and then like media professionals. It's so good that, that things like this exist now for us. And so our producer, I mentioned this before, but our producer Grant Rowley during the lockdown, actually wrote oh, a series wrote a book. of books. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so he wrote a series of five kids' books and Molly T, so Molly Taylor, become cartoonized. Her story was told through a cartoon children's book. And yes. I remember seeing on, on Facebook that a young girl dressed up as Molly T for her book week and took the book along and she was in a little race suit. And it just absolutely like killed me. It was the cutest thing I'd ever seen in my life. Like how special is that? Yeah, it's incredible. It's incredibly special. And, you know, it's like I say, we're very lucky these days because, you know, social media and access to all this, you know, whether it's YouTube or whatever, is so easy for people. Back in the day, that was a lot harder. Um, you know, for me as a young co-driver, you know, I, I obviously looked up to, at the time we had Fabrizia Pons and Michelle Mouton, and, of course, they were my idol. Um, in the Australian Championship, we had um, Kate Officer, who, you know, they were running in that, so you know, top five in the ARC at the time always. And, and I used to think, wow, you know, I looked at that and thought that was so serious that there was a female here in Australia who was competing at the top end of our sport. And, and, you know, I'm sure looking at Kate and watching her, I don't know that I thought it was possible for me at the time, but certainly that was something that I saw. So I knew, you know, if I wanted to, it could be. Um, and eventually, you know, in the early days, I, and I've said this, this story before too, standing at the finish of a rally and seeing the two guys up on the podium who won a state round and, me thinking what a big deal that would be to win a state round. You know, back then I could never imagine that I might win a state round or an Australian championship round, let alone a championship. But, you know, it's what you see that inspires, you know, what you want to do. Yeah, it's so awesome the the success that Molly has had and, and the impact that she's had as well. But we'll come back to, to what you've been up to and although you don't race as much anymore on the occasion that you do get in the race car like uh in Tassie with with Harry um is there anything that you kind of that you do prep wise to keep yourself fit and and ready to go for a co-driver I mean I think there's a general fitness thing yes but for a co-driver when you say prep my first thoughts go to um there's a lot of prep for co-drivers before events um and, and a lot of that is on the admin side, but also, you know, preparation of um, schedules for the events, um, working on your notes, setting out a recce schedule, you know, all that planning of what you're going to do. So when you talk about the Harry thing, 
Um, and I'm, you know, most co-drivers are a little bit anal about all that, that preparation that you would do. When you talk about the Harry story, though, you know, I had the notice of me doing that event happened the day we were loading the, the trucks onto the boat to head across the water to arrive in Tasmania. So for me, my, I mean, I had a mild panic initially because if I had known I was going to be doing that Harry, I would have spent a week preparing for it and I would have been driving onto the boat to go to Tasmania knowing that everything was sorted and I knew what I was doing and you know get on with the job so yeah that that was there was there was a very late night on the spirit of Tasmania everyone else on the boat was in bed and John had emailed me a scanned copy of his notes from the event the year before because some of the roads were common and I was trying to pick up the common bits and rewrite them and yeah well into the night rocking across Bass Strait yeah feeling very underprepared. <laughs> but then you went out and you won that rally, which is... I know. Turned out to be the best rally. You know, I thought Harry had asked me to do an event um, with him earlier on, oh, probably six months, a year before that, just event event they were doing as a test. And I actually, when he asked me, I thought, oh, yeah, I'd really love to... Um, to do that but then I thought oh it's been a while since I've competed at that level you know and I said Harry look you know you're pretty committed in that car and I haven't been at that level for a few years now so I think you should find someone else and we Andy Sarah just hopped in and they went and everything was great so of course when this happened with Tassie my first thought was what about Andy because you know he's done an event with you you know it's great but Andy was overseas at the time so it was me so kind of a nice way to force myself into jumping in because if I, if it had been a choice, I would have done what I did the time before and said, well, you're probably better with somebody else. But anyway, it was me and, you know, it was, it was a bit nerve-wracking, the prep. Uh, you know, it's, it's more the prep thing for me because I like everything in order and I wasn't, everything wasn't in order. But once, once we sort of got started and we went out and did the recce and then, did a very small test and then did the event. Um, we just had the best time. It was so much fun. Loved it. Such a cool story. Now, I've just got to ask, as someone myself, I like to be in control and I like to do things my own way. As a rally co-driver, you're kind of strapped in next to someone else who has full control. What's that feeling like to be you know, you're not controlling the vehicle, you're going very fast and lots of things are coming up. Talk to us a little bit about that feeling and that, yeah, what it feels like to, to sit next to someone and tell them where to go, really. But at the end of the day, you're not not in control of the vehicle. It's a lot of trust, I guess. True. You're to trust someone, trust someone true. a lot. Yeah, true. And then that's the big thing I always say to people, that relationship between a driver and a co-driver is based on 100% trust. Because, you know, and I would be the biggest control freak in the world. So, you know, I'm in control of my side of the car. Neil's in control of his side of the car. For me, I'm just lucky. I've spent so many years sitting beside someone who's so competent in that seat. So from I don't have to worry about his competency. I don't sit in there thinking, oh, dear, I hope we don't crash because, you know, I don't expect to because I know his abilities. And the driver, co-driver, teamwork, 
within a car, which is probably what I really love about rallying, is that you are totally involved in everything that's happening. And essentially you're holding each other's lives in your own hand. And if I say to people, you know, you're approaching a blind crest in the road and you might be approaching in sixth gear and you're doing 200 kilometres an hour. And if I say flat crest, you know, Neil will hold it flat, that you won't back off. You trust what the co-driver is telling you and you drive to that. And people sometimes think, oh, you know, they wouldn't commit totally. And then I tell the story about um, Rally Australia, I can't remember what year, quite some years ago, when we had a, at the time we had a WRC Corolla and that was the last event we were doing in that car and the car had been sold to a European team. And so Neil naturally didn't really want to do that rally because he didn't want to chance anything happening to the car because the car had been sold. But we were committed with our sponsorship with Toyota and we had to do that rally. And the boys had all sorts of plans like, how about we just go over the start ramp, drive a few kilometres, oh dear, got an electrical problem and the car stops. And, and I was pretty dirty at those ideas because I really, really wanted to do this event. And also there were quite a few other international competitors in the identical Corolla WRC car. So I wanted to benchmark ourselves. So in the end, there were, there were, there were quite, Neil, Daryl and I had a lot of chats. And in the end, we decided, okay, well, we'll just, it's a three-day event. We'll just do day one. And at the end of day one, oh dear, we would have some mysterious electrical problem and we'd park the car. Anyway, we did day one and we were doing really well and we were really enjoying ourselves. So the, the same argument happened again about, no, 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 we need to get going. And so we decided we'd do the second day. And on the second day, we crashed and rolled into a paddock of, uh, in a pine plantation and they recently logged the paddock. So it was a paddock full of um, tree stumps that was left. And we left the road at quite high speed and I still can't tell you how many times we rolled, but basically we rolled this through a heap of stumps. So when we came to land, the car looked pretty awful. And... What about you guys? Uh, oh, we were, we were fine. Oh, thank God. Uh, we were just so <laughs> devastated. And then, and it was just started to rain. So it was this miserable scene of two very sad people standing in the mud in amongst a car that looked pretty awful in the middle of tree stumps. And Neil said to me at that point, he said, you said that corner was a five. So on our system, we go one to six. One is a slow hairpin. Six is a very fast, slight corner. So a five is a very fast corner. But this corner was actually a 90 degree corner, which is a three. And I said, no, I didn't. I said it was a three. He said, no, you didn't. You said it was a five. So the point I'm trying to illustrate here is that that commitment and trust in the notes. Neil thought I said five, so he held it at a very fast speed that you could drive a five around, but the corner was a 90 degree corner and we were too fast, so we had this monumental crash. So, yeah, so really I'm just telling that story to highlight the commitment to the notes and the fact that, you know, yes, I'm a control freak, but I feel totally in control in the delivery of those notes to the driver that I totally trust can execute. So that teamwork is really special. And we did stand in that paddock for quite a few hours waiting for the stage to end before our boys could come and retrieve us. 
and we did spend a lot of time doing that. You said it was a three. <laughs> you said it was a five. <laughs> it was a three. I actually started to question whether I had said five instead of three. And we're also talking early days for onboard cameras. Um, and we had the TV had put, I think it was Channel 10 at the time, who put the camera in the car. So when we did finally get extradited from the forest and got back to the service park, of course the camera, the TV people came running down because they all want the crash footage and they're madly taking all this camera gear out of the You guys just wanted to know out. what you said. Just proving each other <laughs> wrong. I, did, I, said, I said, look, before you walk away, can we just have a look at it? And they had a little, you know, mini screen. They sat it on the roof of the rally car. and But by then the crowd had grown 10 deep. You know, everyone was crowded around wanting to see this footage. And I stood there and I thought to myself, if I said five, I'm going to quit. You know, I was so horrified that I might have done that. And particularly with the added backstory of the sale of this car and not wanting to compete and the whole thing. Um, but anyway, they played it and it was as clear as a bell. It was the clearest three you've ever heard. And uh, Neil just... Poor oh, Neil. What did he Sorry. do? So he just misheard. He misheard a note yep. um, that he committed to. Yeah. It'd be so easy to do though to like mishear that. That level when of you go, trust. Like, wow. Yeah. Well, yeah. he uh, after that he actually ended up at the doctors and was having trouble with his ears, and they cleared his ears out. <laughs> so he'd actually had these really badly blocked ears and was having trouble hearing. So when we were at the next event, just sitting around in a normal room chatting, Neil would be saying to people, "Can you not yell?" So loudly. Well, no one was yelling. He'd been living in this dumbed-down world for so long with his hearing. Um, but yeah, so there was the story behind all of that. Wow. There you go. That's yeah. That is really cool. For you, what's probably your favourite car that you've raced? Oh god, it's it's so hard because they're all you know, like that WRC Corolla was amazing. You know, there's only very few people in the world that get to compete in a WRC car and you know we had one that that was pretty special but I think my heart always stays with the Celica SD205 they're just such a good looking car um it was a bit special you know we ran it in group A spec which was the same as the WRC spec at the time although we didn't have all of the good bits on it um but then you know our current car which we occasionally get in which is a classic car. It's an RA40 Celica that Neil built as a replica of Uber Anderson's car. Um, it's so much fun. So, yeah, it's really hard to, to pick a favourite, but out of those three, you know, probably the 205. And what about a career highlight? If you had to pick one, which one would it be? Do you know, I have one moment in one rally that still stands out. Even, you know, yes, we won our first ARC. Peter Glennie and I won that in 1986. And then Neil and I won the championship in 1993. And they were all really big moments. But my one standout moment isn't either of those. It was actually in the first rally that I did with Neil. And... At that time, um, our, our main competition was Possum Bourne and Subaru. Anyway, um, we came, we did, back in the day, we didn't have service parts like we did now. Servicing would often be on the side of the road in between stages. 
And so we had a roadside service and we had we had arrived there and it was a narrow dirt road and there were service crew vehicles parked on both sides, you know, vans and trucks and cars and trailers everywhere. And just sort of a single car week to drive through and down this road to find where your boys were parked. And this is halfway through day one of their first rally together. It was the Rally of Melbourne. And as we, and we were leading, and as we drove through, Possumborn service crew all stood out the front of their truck and clapped as we drove past. And even now I feel really emotional about that moment. And yeah, that's my one, there's been lots of big moments and championships and event wins, but there's just something about that one moment that still gets me. I always find with the rally community, I, I've only seen a very small side of it. I haven't been around it a lot, but I, I just really, I loved the vibe, how everyone was so, or everyone is so supportive of one another. And it's just a very kind of close knit community. And one thing I also found was there are lots of girls involved in rally, probably even more than just general motorsport it's circuit racing stuff like that it just seems a lot more normal type thing do you think do you think rally is heading in the right direction in terms of its equality and inclusivity well I think that the the amazing thing about rally is that the inclusivity has always been there it comes back to more what we were saying before about the lack of exposure for people to to even take that first step and get involved so as a female in motorsport, there were a few females around in, in my early days, not many, um, but I never felt like I wasn't included. I, I always turned up at a rally as a co-driver and thought of myself as a co-driver and gender was a little bit irrelevant. Um, the people that used to make more of that were the media, not, not the other rally people. You know, my the common question for me was, oh, Coral, how does it feel to be, you know, a female in a male-dominated sport? But the same journalist would ask Neil, how did the last stage go? Hey, ask me about the stage. I can tell you about that too. You know, the, there was a famous headline in a Sydney Morning um, Herald article where the headline was Australia's fastest housewife, is how it was described. So things, times have changed no, a lot. Is, oh, my times God. A lot. Yeah. I have a copy oh. of it. Oh, yeah. see, that you is know, that's terrible. How, how much time has changed. You know, modern technology has allowed us to expose the sport to more females at, more easily. You know, the Girls on Track program, various things that are happening and, you know, profiles of people like Molly and people that are out there and are seen by more people. But I think in rallying, Possum actually always used to say that he believed that the friendships were so much stronger in rallying because we weren't actually ever responsible for anybody else's outcome. So on a circuit, you could be the cause of an accident or someone else has had an accident and zipped across the track and taken you out, you know, and there was nothing you could do about it. Whereas in rallying, predominantly, it's two people, a car and a stopwatch. So, you know, whatever we do on that stage isn't going to affect possums stage time and vice versa. And so maybe that more relaxed camaraderie between teams and teams that help each other does come from that basis. But, you know, even though the media were calling me a fast housewife, the actual competitors were just friends and very inclusive. It's actually blown me away a little bit that, like, it does show yeah, how wow. far we've come. 
Yeah. If there was a, a headline, you know, about like Simona de Silvestro or about, you know, any of the women who are racist, imagine if that was a headline these days. It just would, ne- it would just never happen. It would not pass. It yeah. would be torn apart, which is good. Yeah. So, Coral, our final question for you is you've given plenty of it throughout the episode, but what would your main advice be for girls wanting to get into motorsport? My main advice is just to get involved at whatever level you can, however you can. And that's something that we um, that are involved in motorsport need to be better at facilitating, you know, and it's because it's been one of my things um, and I've spoken about it at, you know, board level at Motorsport Australia. So somebody comes along, does Girls on Track, and they say, well, you know, I'm interested in, in, in a career in engineering or media or driving or whatever involvement in motorsport. How do I get involved? And we will always say, join a car club. And, and really, that's where it all starts. You know, you can join a car club and you don't need to have a car or be a driver. You can get involved as an official or, you know, help out, join a crew, help out. But it's that introduction to, I think that's the step we really need to work on because Johnny Car Club is great advice, but how would someone who doesn't know anything about motorsport actually know which club? You know, you could go onto the website and look up a list of clubs, but do you have a specific interest? Is it rallying? Is it racing? You know, is it somebody close to me? You know, some clubs are more active than other clubs. So I think that's the next step we need to work on is to get them from that, say, someone comes along to Girls on Track, they're keen, they want to join a club, they want to get involved, then we need to help open up what the opportunities are within car clubs, you know, to get them involved at that level. And really, for me, I got I joined a car club because I was going to go do a rally with my dad, but it was at the car club where it was actually Ian Stewart, who was an Australian rally champion co-driver, who ran a co-driving course every so often at the club for club members so I actually went and did Ian's course that he ran at the car club and that was how you know I met friends um peers who were other co-drivers learned how to co-drive you know did some officialing at rallies did some you know we used to go and just do weekend motor carners as well and whatever and and it was very social but really it was that club environment that was how it all started yeah, amazing. Seriously, this has been such a cool podcast. I've I just so you were cool. speaking, you were just saying some things. I'm just sitting there like just so engrossed in the things you're saying. Oh, really? <laughs> Tanaya and I are messaging each other, going, Oh my god, she's so cool. She is so <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Literally. I mean, I just think I've just been really lucky to have been exposed to it through my dad. And then just by chance, one thing fell into another thing, fell into another thing with no clear plan of where I wanted to end up. Um, It just did. It's just how it ended up. And I think, you know, when you're in a sport that you love, you know, even now, like we're just about to go to New Zealand because Harry's running in the WRC round there. So my role is very much back in the team management role, not not the competitive role. Um, But I enjoy that. And, and this is pretty exciting because, um, you know, he's getting an opportunity to run a WRC2 car and pit himself against other people in equal machinery. The saddest part for me this weekend is um, Molly's competing in Morocco the same weekend. And 
I was already well into the planning for the New Zealand thing when that came up and, you know, I could go to Morocco with Molly. Um, so that's been a really tough decision for me, but I was sort of already, and the other problem is we come straight back from New Zealand and I'm only home for one day and then we've got the 86 round at Bathurst. So if I'd gone to Morocco, it was New Zealand and Bathurst that it, that it clashed with. So two events was just a bit too much. But, yeah, I'll be in New Zealand with Harry and my heart's going to be floating around somewhere in Morocco. What will you get up to this weekend in New Zealand for the WRC round? Uh, well, this weekend, so I fly over tomorrow. Um, so Sunday, Sunday for me will be a bit of a recce of where everything's at, you know, just in Auckland, not the stages, just from um, the rally point of view. And there's a, I've got a, I've got a, a long job list actually, and it's all lots of little small things, you know, and you've got documentation and admin checks and all that happening early on. The WRC is a little bit more involved because you've also, you know, that there's lots of rules and boxes you've got to tick at a WRC event. And part of that is even, you know, picking up, they, they run a particular um, GPS tracker in the cars for recce. So you have to organise the GPS trackers for the, for the recce car. There's similar sort of GPS safety units, you know, like our rally safety units that we use here in Australian rallying. Priya may have seen them. Um, so there's a whole lot of, all these little peripheral things that have to be sorted in the next couple of days. Um, and then my role predominantly is just making sure that everyone knows where they have to be at what time. And, you know, do, depending on how the event goes, sometimes, you know, there's a bit of input with, okay, we're faced with this situation. So within the rules, what are we allowed to do? And that's kind of my role. And then what about the pilgrimage to the mountain? What, what does it, going from obviously World Rally Championship, you know, a world stage event, huge event, then to the biggest thing that we have here in Australia, the Bathurst 1000. When, how do you flip your brain from, with not much time, how do you flip your brain from World Rally Championship to, you know, your role within Toyota 86 at Mount Panorama? Yeah, it just, it just happened to just go, you know, at the end of the day, essentially a lot of things within various forms of motorsport is the same. You know, you're competing in a category that has a set of rules and you know, has a timetable of when you've got to do what, where and when, you know, it's it's very similar. The, the only difference is that one's driving around a track and one goes off and does stages, you know, in a forest or away from the main service park. But, you know, I must say, I mean, obviously for me, rallying's my first love. But Bathurst, of all the circuit races, obviously when you go to Bathurst, you, Nobody, nobody would miss it or, or not be affected by it. And usually when the first time you drive into Bathurst and you just sort of come over the hill and you can see the, the track area, the thing that always blows me away the most is the size of the campgrounds and how many people are there. It's just, you know, it's phenomenal. And there is a huge atmosphere, you know, bigger than any atmosphere. You know, maybe, you know, our F1 event or maybe, you know, the Clipsal in South Australia always had a big vibe about it. But in general, I think Bathurst is the one that has the biggest atmosphere. And and you feel that when you're there. Bathurst has 7,500 campsites on its on its space within the precinct. Oh, good to know the number. Yeah. I didn't know that. single one. Every single one for 2022 is sold. 
yeah yeah it's going to be amazing it's going to be incredible I cannot wait to get up there I get up there the Sunday before just because I'm literally getting I'm getting butterflies thinking about it Oh, so, I love so it. Cool. I'm so excited. I can't believe yeah. it's Bathurst time. Oh, yeah, let's go. <laughs> Bathurst Sunday, you wouldn't do anything but sit in the lounge room and watch mm-hmm. television all day. 100%. Oh, I'm so excited. Love can't that wait. place. Best time of the year. All right, Coral, thank you so much for your time and for Pleasure. joining us on this podcast. I've had an absolute blast and I know that our listeners will absolutely love this one. Thank you. What a woman. <laughs> What a woman. Yeah, she is unreal. Seriously. Some of those stories I was like, is this like real? She asked me at the top of the episode, she was like, uh, Tanea, how long is this going to take? You know, I've got some errands that I needed to run later on. And I was like, oh, you know, 40 minutes, 40 minutes to an hour, give or take. And then literally like an hour and 20 minutes later we're still talking and then once we press the stop recording button she spoke to us for like another half an hour just telling us all these cool stories so yeah absolutely awesome chat she's so nice though like she always gives you the time even at the racing events I go like she seems busy and I go up and catch up with her and she's always down for a chat she's such a cool lady and just some of the stories like she's she's really watched motorsport kind of evolve over the years and she's been in it for for a long time and and I love that she's got the outlook as well that and I've noticed this with a few of our guests lately that they actually they've never felt different like they've always just felt like they're just girls that race and that's it which is so good it's very refreshing to have that it reminds me that you know everything's going in the right direction and it's good I still just can't get over the Australia's fastest housewife. Was that it? Yeah, the Sydney Morning Herald actually printed a headline that called Coral Australia's fastest housewife. Could you actually imagine? I was telling my dad about that today. Oh my God. That it's just ridiculous. And obviously, it highlights how far we've come and, you know, progressed uh, with women being involved in motorsport. Like, it wasn't even a thing back then. Like, people didn't even think that, you know, girls could do this crazy thank you all so much for listening to uh our first two-parter of girls on the grid so you know let us know on the gram if you like the two parts where we can actually sit down and have more you know in-depth chats with our guests or if you just prefer the short you know 40 minute ones seriously Priya and I just like actually get so engrossed in the interviews and just talking to the guests because you know we love them all so yeah you might see a couple more two-parter episodes and yeah we we enjoy making all of these and yeah just absolutely have so much fun chatting to any of our guests yeah for sure but as always we hope you enjoyed it make sure to keep up to date with all the latest on our socials we will see you next monday morning have a great week You've just listened to another Network R production.